Appalachia is a 200,000 square mile region that stretches from southern New York to northern Mississippi and includes all or parts of 12 other states. Often misunderstood and misrepresented, Appalachia is home to some of the best writers and publishers in the United States. And this program seeks to profile those authors and publishers, discussing and talking about how Appalachia has influenced and impacted their work. From the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, I'm your host, Elliot Parker, and now, Appalachia. And hello, friends. We welcome you to another episode of Now Appalachia, heard on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network as we continue to profile the outstanding authors and publishers that are living and writing in and about Appalachia. And we have another one of those outstanding writers with us today, and that is Jordan Farmer. We're going to talk to him about his novel, Paul Bear, and his new book that will be coming out a little bit later on uh, as well. And Jordan Farmer joins us. He's originally from West Virginia. He received a PhD in English from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. His stories have appeared in Southwest Review, Southern Humanities Review, The Baltimore Review, Pembroke Magazine, Day One Magazine, and many other publications. And The Paul Bear is his first novel. So Jordan, welcome to Now Appalachia. We are delighted to have you here and have you on the program. Thank you, Elliot. I appreciate being here. So I wanted to ask you first, before we start talking about Paul Bear and about uh, your writing career and your process and all of those issues, in researching you, there was a publication called Sequestrian that interviewed you a while back, and you had an interesting statement that I wanted you to talk a little bit about and provide some context for. And in that publication, Sequestrium, you said that all good writers are like sharks. You've got to keep moving. So what did you mean by that in terms of writing and that advice for writers? Well, I don't know if it's accurate or not, but I, I heard sort of that sharks have to keep moving to keep breathing water through their gills. Um, I'm not sure if that's true, but it, it sounded to me like this idea of keeping at work or keeping looking for the next thing is essential to kind of the writing life and being happy. I know that I'm miserable when I don't have a project or something I'm working on. And, and I think that we have so many um, failed projects and false starts and things that work and things that don't work and so much time between when you actually do sell something or get a publication um, of just waiting and anticipation that if I'm not in a new project or working on something or at least thinking about working on something new, that I'm dissatisfied. And to me, that idea of always having some kind of project going is just important for productivity and producing good work. So, Are you I, think if, so I just think that if you, if you want to be a successful writer, you need to be writing something all the time. Um, I don't so, sort of have an opinion on what genre or um, taking time to experiment with other things or anything like that, but you should be thinking about some kind of artistic endeavor project. Are you the type of writer that has multiple projects going on at one time or do you stick to primarily one project once you get your mind and attention focused on it? 
I stick to one project usually. Sometimes, I mean, I, you can't help but have ideas or thoughts or about the next project. And, you know, I, I try to just take that and put it in, on the back burner, leave it in the back of my mind and stay focused on what's at hand. Um, typically, what's at hand is usually enough to, to occupy most of my, my time and attention. Very good. Excellent. And I know that being from Southern West Virginia, uh, you and I share that in common. We're both from Southern West Virginia and you were interested in books and reading uh, at a young age and were interested in writing, especially at a young age. But uh, you grew up in Logan in Logan County, uh, West Virginia, um, and you read a lot and uh, you were always looking for new books and new authors and different types of books. But I understand that you got a little bit uh, disenchanted because the kinds of books that you were exposed to and that you were reading as a kid didn't really reflect the kind of life and the kind of experiences you were having in Southern West Virginia growing up. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I think that um, the first author I found really early on, I mean, probably before I was really ready for him, I was 11 or 12 and reading Stephen King books. And um, some of that world, felt accessible to me because it was kind of about working class people in in Maine. And I had never been to Maine, but it, it felt like um, a similar kind of rural, small town kind of kind of world. But then I um I found sort of crime fiction. And the first really crime writer I got into was um, Lawrence Block. And I started reading all those Matthew Scudder novels, which uh, I love to this day. I think that's a great series. Um, but you know, I mean um, block stomping grounds are all, you know, Midtown, Manhattan, Brooklyn, places like that. And then I started thinking about even the King novels that take place in, um, you know, uh, a lot of them are in New England, places like that. And I started thinking that I just am not finding these rural American stories in my part of the world, in Appalachia or in the South or places like that. So I, I started getting really disenchanted and thinking maybe there's not a market or a place for these kind of stories. Um, maybe they don't want them. Um, I had sort of a, I guess, a chip on my shoulder about it, thinking that, you, you know, um, this is a place that so often people have stereotypes or um, preconceived notions about. I thought that that would follow any, any kind of work I tried to sell. And it wasn't until I found um, writers like Dorothy Allison, Breeze, DJ Pancake, um, Ron Rash, uh, Larry Brown, Harry Cruz, guys like that who were kind of writing that kind of grittier rural Southern kind of work that I was like, oh, okay, there, there is a place for this. People are interested in this. And um, novels about rural America don't have to be, you know, Southern Gothic kind of things or Faulkner or what have you. Yeah, excellent, excellent point. And I know you and I are relatively close in age, and, and I feel that same way growing up as a big reader. And I know you feel this way to some degree, too, as we were growing up reading uh, not just books about West Virginia, but really books about Appalachia in particular. Uh, a lot of those books were written by people who weren't from here. And so it was, you know, um, some assumption about what was going on here, some uh, urban legend worked into their stories about what life was like here. But a lot of that work was not done by West Virginians. And I think you know, in the last 25 or 30 years, you know, we've seen a lot of writers from 
West Virginia and Appalachia, and you mentioned some of them, you know, Brown and Ron Rash, really stepping to the forefront. Uh, you know, David Joy's another one who's come on the scene here recently that, you know, really portraying Appalachia as it really is. And um, I wanted to know if, if, if you felt like that is something that you think is going to continue uh, going forward, and are we done with those days where most of the storytelling being done about this region is done by outsiders? I, I hope so. I, I certainly think so. Um, not that I have a problem with someone from a different area writing about this place or about any place. I don't want to put um, restrictions on what people write or where. I, I just want them to do it with the same kind of um, care and honesty and thoughtfulness that I think that I would hopefully do if I was writing about another place that I'm not from and research it and, and sort of do it with um, care, I suppose is the word I'll go to again. Um, yeah, I, I was worried that um, there would either be no interest in stories from here or that um, stories from here would get in the hands of editors and they would say, this is what I thought that place was like, so therefore I'm not interested in it, or worse that I would find um, just no interest at all in, in where I was from and the stories I was trying to tell, because I wanted to um, portray it as honestly as possible, um, the good aspects and the bad. Excellent. Very good. Uh, so let's shift focus for a little bit and talk about your novel, The Paul Bear, which is uh, just an outstanding story and it meets a lot of the criteria and the issues we've been talking about during the first part of our discussion today. Uh, it's set in fictional Lynch, West Virginia, and I think that um, anybody from Appalachia or from West Virginia that uh, you know has any experience there and knows people that are from there or, or living there now know uh, it's got some of the issues that Appalachia is struggling struggling with. It's got condemned homes. It's got abandoned coal mines. Um, it's got the problems with addiction. And people that have stayed in Lynch, West Virginia, in your novel, are under the thumb, so to speak, of a guy named Ferris Gilbert, who is kind of. Lynch, West Virginia's bad guy. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about him and how has he been able to kind of get so many people under his control or under his thumb uh, that are still there in Lynch? I think that I wanted to write a character that was ruthless in the fact that he had felt exploited and therefore was willing to exploit his own people, I guess, you, you, you know, this kind of idea that when things are in enough of an economic decline and there's not enough food on the table and there's nothing but crumbs, people fight over the crumbs. And I guess I thought that um, he was that kind of character who was able to put morality aside and just worry about survival. And to him, survival was if I'm the bigger fish, I'm going to eat you. Um, that being said, I, I think that he's a really terrible guy and, ju and just blatantly villainous in many ways with, it, with his hatefulness and prejudices and, and, you know, horrible lack of moral code. And, and, and something that's interesting about a, a lot of your characters, and, and I'll ask you to talk about some of them here in just a second, but a lot of your characters, one of, the, one of the interesting aspects of the novel is the ones doing bad things, even Ferris to some degree, 
don't feel like that they're behaving in a bad way. Um, they feel like that they are, I don't want to say justified in what they're doing, but they feel like that, uh, you know, they're doing what they have to do in order to, to survive or to maintain or to uh, take care of whatever needs to be taken care of. And a lot of them don't see themselves in, in that vein. Can you talk a little bit about that? Was that something you had set out to do when you were developing the novel or is that something that just kind of uh, started to happen as you were working through the plot? Well, I think that, I think that it's important when you're writing villains, even if you're not being too ambiguous about it and saying, no, this character is a villain, that you have to understand that villains don't think of themselves as villains. Um, I'm sure Ferris feels justified in a lot of ways about terrible things he does. And um, other characters, um, getting off the idea of Ferris for a moment and, and moving to some of the other characters who do some horrible things in the book. I was kind of interested in just the idea of criminality in general and, and how someone gets involved in that kind of life or lifestyle. Um, I had a relative who I loved very much who in his younger years was a criminal. And I'm not sure now in hindsight how much he ever got out of it. And I had that strange experience early on, this duality of this person I love and who's good to me um, has done some really terrible things. What's that mean? That they can do terrible things and yet be someone that I love and care about and, and caring to people they care about. So I started getting interested in this idea of, I guess, crime in general and, and what brings people to it. Is it circumstances? Is it nature? Is it nurture? Um, what causes it? Yeah, very, yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, when you talk about, uh, when you talk about that, you certainly have a plot uh, that you have created and that you have layered in some ways that has established that uh, concept and that idea and allowed that to happen. Um, and one of the things I really liked and attracted me to your book is that, well, we have a character named Jason Feltz, who we kind of meet early on in the story, um, who gets tangled up with Ferris once Ferris realizes uh, he can uh, uh, do something for uh, for Ferris. Jason can, but he lives above the town funeral home, which I love. Uh, my grandfather was a mortician. My dad was a mortician. I spent the first 10 years of my life, 11 years of my life, living above a funeral home, so I identified with Jason uh, very much. But um, what's going on with Jason is that – as a sort of this aspiring social worker, uh, you've got him counseling one of uh, Ferris, one of the Gilbert brothers, who's incarcerated inside a youth correctional facility for possession charges. Um, and then Ferris kind of goes to Jason, threatens him with violence, and says, "I want you to smuggle this package into the jail uh, and give this to you know my brother." Um, but it, it kind of really doesn't start. I mean, that's kind of the basic, but then you've got all these other tentacles that kind of sprout off from that main plot. Um, and we also meet another person named uh, Terry Blankenship, who is a young man that uh, uh, is trying to carve out kind of uh, a life for himself um, and, and his boyfriend. And he owes money to the, to, uh, the Gilberts. Uh, there's just a lot going on there with a lot of these different characters. And, and I think, you know, there's something about small town, uh, Appalachia that allows this to go on where everybody knows everybody and people owe people things and favors and money and 
secrets come about. Um, how much of that was important in terms of putting that in the story, uh, connecting that back to kind of the Appalachian experience? I, I think that it's such a small sort of universe when you live in these towns with, you know, five, 6,000 people in the county limits, much less the town limits, that it, it becomes impossible to not have people wrapped up in each other's business and sort of um, old opinions of entire families or, the, the, you know, this kind of um, deep history <laughs> of interactions between people. So I, I thought that that was something that would have to be there for authenticity, especially, I mean, I think of that's seemed to be in all good rural fiction. If you go all the way back to like Sherwood Anderson's Winesburg, Ohio, or if you look at like Donald Ray Pollock's, Donald Ray Pollock's Knock em Stiff just a couple of years ago. I mean, there's this idea of these linked short story collections where characters show up and influence each other. And, and I thought that there would have to be that kind of overlap of this character is that character, or this character is at least known this guy's dad or this guy's brother or something like that. There's there's not many degrees of separation when you are in such a small place. Yeah, that's, that's very, very true. Very, very true. Uh, we're talking with Jordan Farmer here on Now Appalachia. We're talking with him about his writing career and also about his novel, The Paul Bearer, uh, which is set in fictional Lynch, West Virginia, in, in a town that is in decline, but uh, a lot of the inhabitants of that in decline town are up to no good and up to all kinds of uh, different problems, and we're talking with him about that. So, Jordan, I want to ask you, stepping away from the book for just a minute, who are some writers that have influenced you? I know you mentioned Ron Rash and some of them a minute ago, but um, writers that you really feel like um, you go back to and, and lean on when you need inspiration or that you find yourself going back to to read repeatedly? Who are some of those? I think I like to read people who aren't like me. Um, as far as older influences, people that, that write, I think, much differently than I. I, I wish I could write sentences like Robert Penn Warren. Um, all the King's Men is one of my favorite books of all time. And I, I, I read that book over and over again, just thinking, why can't I write sentences of this quality? <laughs> I, um, I assume that his second draft sentence is better than my eighth draft sentence. But, um, and, and then I'm, I'm really um, taken by, as I said, people with a different writing style than, than I am. So um, minimalist writers like Amy Hempel or, um, Raymond Carver interests me a lot, just the, the way that they have sort of dealt with the, the contract of dual construction of a text with an audience. You know, I, I guess I'm, I'm aware as a writer that I construct the text with the audience. I write the sentence and then they produce the image in their mind. And it's interesting to me how writers like that have attempted to do it with, um, more stark um, script census, whereas I don't. <laughs> um, and then just writers who inspired me as like, hey, if these people can do it, maybe you can, or, or you know, some of the, the Southern writers we talked about, um, Larry Browns and Dorothy Allison, and Harry Cruz, people like that. Um, as far as more contemporary things that are coming out right now, um, I'll read anything Otessa Moshveg writes. Her work is phenomenal, and I'm um, 
also been really, really interested in some of the other, as you said, um, people who are writing about the area right now, David Joy, um, Brian Panowich, and um, who else? So many, but I, I'm, I'm gonna, we're gonna hang up and I'm gonna go, you didn't talk about so-and-so. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, we've had, you know, you mentioned David Joy, and we've had him on the program uh, uh, as an author on Now Appalachia, and he just, he just writes some passages of, 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 of dialogue and description that are just so achingly beautiful. I mean, it just makes you, just brings tears to your eyes, and um, uh, he's, he's one of those writers I wish I could write like him. You know, he just has such a great way of accurately portraying Appalachia and the people in the region, but he does so in, in such a beautiful way. And I know he studied under Ron Rash, so there's a connection there, uh, studied under Ron Rash at um, Western Carolina. So, yeah, there's so many really good uh, contemporary writers writing about this region, and, and uh, you touched on a lot of them there uh, as well. I, I want to go back to your book for just a second. Uh, and ask you another question. As we, as the story unfolds, we've mentioned a little bit about Jason Feltz, and we've talked a little bit about Ferris Gilbert and how he's got his tentacles in, and and everybody and everything. And then we've got um, a situation where, um, uh, you know, we've got some other characters involved here, um, you know. And then ultimately, what ends up happening, um, you know, ter uh, Terry. We talk about Terry Blankenship. Um, Something happens. The local sheriff, Sheriff Thompson, is found dead uh, as part of the plot that unfolds. And now you've got kind of parallel stories running in terms of Jason and Terry really have to not only outrun the law as they're kind of suspects in Sheriff Thompson's death, but Ferris Gilbert's hot on their trails as well. And I, I wanted to ask you as, as a writer and kind of structuring that plot, uh, was that difficult to kind of keep the, the, those dual stories running where you've got uh, Jason on one side, Terry on the other. They're both in trouble for different reasons. They both got Ferris after them for different reasons. But you know, they're kind of kind of running the same race, but in different lanes, for lack of a better uh, uh, figurative speech. There, but was that difficult to, to construct? How did you put all that together? Because you did it so seamlessly in the book, you almost couldn't tell that they were two separate, sort of two separate stories there, or two separate oh, plot points. Well, thank you. That's that's a nice compliment. Um, I, I'm glad you felt that way. <laughs> um, I don't think that it was necessarily difficult from a plotting perspective. I, it, it should have been difficult from a plotting perspective. I'm not the type of writer that outlines. I just sort of um, go with it. And if I have a sloppy draft, I'm willing to just chop it up and write another one. I think that um, I have the suspicion that plotting is trying to get around the idea of writing some, a bad early draft. Like if I plot it all out, I won't have to rewrite it. And I'm gonna to have to rewrite it anyway, just the way I work. So why would I bother, you know, trying to plot it all out. If I plot some kind of um, interesting thing I wasn't thinking of will occur and, and surprise me. And maybe I would lose that in the plotting. So I, I don't um, sort of outline, I guess. Um, but I found, it, I found it pretty easy as far as the construction of the plot. I found it difficult to have that kind of multiple narrative as far as making the craft decision in how I was going to present it. I didn't know very early on um, there was more of the Jason character and more from his perspective. And I thought this is going to be first person narrative from Jason's perspective. And then we'll perhaps have some sections of third person with the other characters and 
that just didn't give me enough time with everybody. I felt like it needed to be more of a um, ensemble piece that allowed more equal time between all the characters. Um, so once I figured that out, figured out, no, this isn't all Jason's story first person. You need more time with these other characters. In fact, you need more time with these other characters earlier. I became easier in, in the next the next draft after that. Very good. Excellent. Excellent. So of all the characters uh, that you have in the story, and I know this is kind of a loaded question and, and tough to do as a writer, but of all the characters that you've got, you know, Sheriff Thompson, we've talked about Ferris, we've talked about Jason, we've talked about Terry. Um, who is your favorite? I'm, I'm very partial to Jason, I think. I think Jason is the one that stayed with me the longest and, and was sort of fully formed in my mind uh, first. I, um, for a long time, I had had this idea of having a narrator or a, at least a protagonist um, that I considered to be in what I would call an unconventional body in a book for a while. And particularly a book that wasn't focused necessarily on that character's body itself. Um, I was born with a congenital bone disorder that is, um, Stunted my growth. I'm I'm five foot tall, so I, I live in what I consider an unconventional body. And when I was young and reading, I never came across narratives about people like myself who um, were in um, unconventional bodies, unless it was some kind of like let's watch this person overcome the struggle of that body. So I thought I, I'm I'm tired of this. This doesn't represent life to me you know it's not all just about overcoming some type of physical struggle based on your physicality uh where is where is the stories of these people where they're making art or in some in romance or succeeding in some kind of um work endeavor or something like that so i i thought pretty early on i wanted a character like that in a story not about their body. So I thought I'll put one of those in a crime novel. I love it. Yeah, that, that that's great. And I, I certainly think uh, he's a wonderful character and, and so many great characters in your book. But yeah, I'm with you. I, I, liked, I like Jason the best. There's something about him that really just leaps off the page, both the circumstances he's put in, but also uh, his character and his personality. And in addition to this book, you have another book coming out uh, that will be out uh, relatively soon called The Poison Flood, uh, which is another novel, uh, sort of uh, a, a gritty story, but a tender story, also set uh, in West Virginia. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what that book is about and when that book will be out? Yeah, that book will be out um, in May of um, 2020, May 5th, I believe. And it's about a disabled ghostwriter, um, a disabled uh, ghostwriting musician named Hollis Bragg, who was previously the member of a very influential rock band that became famous after he left the band. And he now writes songs for them while he lives in kind of isolation in rural West Virginia. And he's, he's sort of content that way until 
this large environmental disaster where the local water um, source of the town is contaminated kind of puts him back into the spotlight and causes him to sort of have to reassess his life and, and his, his self and whether or not he wants to um, continue to, to um, make art for someone else or for himself. And of course, he gets involved in all kinds of dangerous, uh, frightening situations. There are some betrayals and he witnesses a murder and uh, things like that. Well, it sounds like uh, an outstanding novel, and uh, I can't wait to read it, and I would encourage uh, any of our audience who has uh, read Paul Bear and enjoyed it or has not read Paul Bear yet uh, to read it and then to go ahead and pre-order a copy of, um, of your new book because it really sounds terrific, um, and I know I'm looking forward to it, and we certainly can't wait to have you uh, on Now Appalachia uh, in the spring or summer of 2020 to talk about it. So, Jordan, um, in our final moments today, if anybody wants to get in contact with you to uh, talk to you about writing or um, to talk to you about the Paul Bear or the Poison Flood that will be out uh, in May of 2020, um, first of all, how can they get in contact with you? And secondly, where can they get copies of your books? Uh, copies of my books should be available in um, most bookstores. I don't, can't say if um, your local, about your local bookstore necessarily. I, hopefully, I, I hope they would have it. Um, but also, they, if you're ordering online, um, find it through IndieBound or if you want to go to a larger bookseller, barnesandnoble.com or Amazon, somewhere like that. Uh, as far as getting in touch with me, I am available through um, contact with my publishers at, at um, GP Putnam's and, and Sons, um, through um, my agent, Noah Ballard, or my publicist, uh, Elena Hershey. Very good. Very good. So uh, ways that uh, folks can get in contact with you. And I know you're uh, an author that's welcome to come and do readings at different places. And so if we have anybody in our audience that uh, is looking for uh, someone to come and, and give a reading for an event or a festival or something like that, I know uh, you do that quite a bit and are willing to do that. So that's fantastic. Jordan Farmer yeah. has. Oh, good. I'm sorry. I was just going to say, yeah, I, I'd love any opportunities such as that. Fantastic, fantastic. Jordan Farmer has been our guest uh, here today on Now Appalachia. We've been talking to him about uh, his novel, The Paul Bear, and a little bit about his writing career and his writing process, and reminding you that his latest book, or his newest book, called The Poison Flood, will be out in May 2020. So, Jordan, thanks so much for the outstanding discussion. Really enjoyed talking with you about your book and your process and uh, your thoughts on writing. And congratulations on the Paul Bear. Congratulations on the Poison Flood. And we, we can't wait to have you back on uh, in 2020 to talk about the new book. So, congratulations. Thank you so much. I appreciate you having me. It's been an honor. And that's going to do it for us on this episode of Now Appalachia. We want to remind you that the executive producer of Now Appalachia is Pam Stack. And also remind you that this is a copyrighted podcast owned and operated by the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Until next time, I'm Elliot Parker. Stay well and see you someplace soon, I hope. <laughs>